0: We are in the midst of a four-week series of messages answering the fundamental questions of life, the fundamental list. We talked last week that there are four questions that every human being that has ever lived or will ever live or is living now has to answer or at least ponders and thinks about as the most important questions there are. And the first one is, how did we get here? Why is there something instead of nothing? What was the origin of us, of this world that we live in, of reality as we know it? The second question is, then what went wrong? What happened after that? Can we fix it, whatever that is that is wrong? And then the last question is, so what do we do in the midst of that? We spent last week answering the first of those four questions, which is, how did we get here? And the answer we came to last week, and that we know to be true, is that the one and only God created everything. We spent time talking about the traits and the characteristics and the realities of who God is. We didn't talk a whole lot about the actual creation moment because the start of the Bible says in the beginning God, that God is the flashpoint, the uh, first mover, the one that creates all things. What we know from Scripture is that this one and only God who created everything we talked about last week is perfect and good and right and just and is all-powerful and all-knowing. That God created a world that He looked upon after creating it and said, It is good, as in right, as in perfect. God created it, and it's good. He creates all the elements of the world around and Each day when he has finished his creation, he says, and he looked upon it and he declared that it was good. And then when he created human beings, he said, it is very good. And if the story were to end there, we would assume that everything just kind of went on in this perfected state, in this good state. And yet we know that that is not the world in which we live. At the core of who we are, we know there is something wrong with this world. We see it in news every day. We see it on television or on the internet. We hear about it from friends and neighbors. We witness it in our own lives. In fact, I just did this morning a quick search of four or five major news sites, including local and national and worldwide, and just screenshotted a few of the headlines that are there. And I think we've got that here. The Maui fires and the firefighter that was critically injured and a state representative sentenced to prison or a nine-year-old girl fatally shot by a neighbor or an explosion that levels homes or a community that's mourning a teen killed in a train accident a disturbing video of an unconscious grandma being thrown off a city bus. It doesn't take long to go down the trail of just literally a three- or four-minute internet search to realize there's something wrong. We can think of reasons that things are wrong and we can talk about the underlying reasons that things are wrong and we have differing opinions about that sometimes. Some people think it's the ideologies at work of contrasting style of what we believe or the breakdown of the family or a lack of education or the endless cycle of poverty or religion itself that is playing itself out and it's really easy to look at the world on the outside and say man I see all kinds of problems there and there is definitely something wrong but in our more reflective moments in our more real moments with ourselves it's not just out there that we know something is wrong there's also something wrong in us as well all of us at some point have been embarrassed by a situation and have reacted in anger or have been upset with someone because they did not act in a way or say things that we expected them to or they did something offensive to us and we have reacted in anger or we have said something we wish we could take back or we have fought something that we know is not good. Last year when we went to the Southern Baptist Convention, um, in California we rented a vehicle to drive around and um, when you rent a vehicle it's generally one of the newer ones and I, I don't even remember what brand or model it was it was a car that got us from A to B but what I do remember about the particular car is a, a, a little crossover SUV kind of thing and as you drove it had that heads-up display that comes up in front of you. Y- y- y'all know what I'm talking about like it's On the wind showed in front of you And it's almost distracting Like it's not supposed to be But you realize you're looking at stuff And right in the center was your current speed And when it started to go a little bit Over what it was supposed to It just gave a little warning sign to you And it felt a little bit like I was a child again Getting chided by my parents Right? Like ooh, watch your speed, watch it, what's going on. And I, I get that in my own car sometimes because usually when we're navigating somewhere, we have uh, the phone up or the car play on and the speed is displayed there. And I have a child who I won't name but is the youngest who will <laughs> say to me, oh, Dad, what, 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 you're going over speed. Like, what's, what's your speed? Now, we're not talking 30 or 40 over, you know, just... A couple, but like that reminder is there. Can you imagine if there was like an audible reminder of every time you said something or did something or thought something you weren't supposed to? Like, deep down we know that there's something wrong with us. And the question is, what went wrong? How did we get from it is good from God declaring it in creation to seriously wrong. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Now, while you're turning there, which shouldn't take you too long, Genesis, first book of the Bible there, Genesis, third chapter. While you're turning there, let me tell you about a couple of things coming up I want you to make sure you're aware of. Or actually one thing coming up tonight and then a need we have as a church that I want you to be aware of. Uh, first of all, tonight I want to invite all of you back. We have our Sunday night, uh, night of prayer that's happening tonight. It's the first one time we've done something like this in a long time. And we're going to just be here tonight. We're going to pray. We're going to walk through guided prayer as a congregation, as individuals, as people, in groups. And so make sure that you're here tonight at 6 o'clock. For the night of prayer that will be happening. The second thing is, I wanted to tell you that while we are worshiping here on Sunday mornings in this room, downstairs underneath is a great ministry we call Extended Care or ETC. And Janetta Holmes makes sure that that's staffed and ready to go. And we depend on volunteers from the congregation to be with our kindergarten and down children in order to make sure that they have not just care, but that we do some teaching, that it is an extended part of what we do in Sunday school, and that they are being taught in the midst of this. Janetta sets the agenda, and we have volunteers that help. We are in need of some volunteers. And so we have had some transition there, and some parents that have graduated out or graduated in, and we are in need of some volunteers. And so if you're here today, how many of you are here today? Okay, just making sure we're here. All right, if you're here today you could be a candidate to help. And when I say could be a candidate, I don't mean that in your mind you think, yep, somebody else can do that for sure. They could be. I mean, you could be the answer to what God is calling. And so some of you in this room are being called by God or being led by God or are going to be volunteered by us to be a part of our extended care ministry. And so if that would be something you could help with, um, notice I didn't say want to help with but could help with, you need to see Janetta. Let me just say, it is a rewarding ministry, and I joke about being told, but it, it's a rewarding ministry, and we need help in there so that parents have a safe place and a good place to continue to bring their kids. And so make sure you're aware of that. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read what went wrong starting in verse 1. Let me just tell you, there are lots of questions that get asked by this passage of Scripture. We're not going to delve into all those questions. If you've got real questions, you can come up and ask Noah after the sermon, alright? And so, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was most cunning of the wild animals that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, the serpent did, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God says, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now, just a note there. Notice how the enemy, Satan, the serpent, is already trying to twist God's word. Did he say you couldn't eat anything? And Eve kind of falls into the trap a little bit because she says, Well, we could eat, we just can't eat of this one tree or touch it. God never said don't touch it. He said you don't eat out of it. No, the serpent said, you will certainly not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's holding out on you. He didn't want you to be like him, and so he's telling you, don't eat of that tree. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now let me say something real quick because sometimes this little part gets misinterpreted because people um, will will want to blame Eve more than Adam here. Let me just say that the the original language here says that they were right there together, elbow to elbow. Making the decision together. Okay? So... uh, this is not Eve making a decision and then forcing Adam to be a part. In fact, in the New Testament, we're going to be talking through the book of Romans, uh, starting in a, a few weeks. In the New Testament, when it talks about the Adam that sinned, notice it uses Adam that sinned, not Eve, right? And so they're there together. They eat of the fruit. I don't know if it was apple, pear, orange, Something we've never heard of before. I don't know what it was. It was fruit. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Think about how ridiculous that statement is. Let's go hide behind a tree And God won't find us. So the Lord called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from a tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, The woman you gave me, she gave me some fruit, and I ate. So the Lord God, Adam probably heard about that for a while afterwards from his wife, just letting you know. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. You will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to the dust. What went wrong? Well, the basic answer is one word, three letters. Sin. But what does that look like? What do we learn about that in this passage of Scripture? And and I want to show you four things in this passage about what went wrong and how this story of Adam and Eve is our story it's not just some story from ancient times it's not just a, a description of something that happened as the world was beginning, it is our story as well and that's because the first thing that we see in this passage of scripture is the progression of sin in our lives and in the lives of Adam and Eve, how this has continued to this day sin doesn't just all at once happen. There is a progression in our life of that sin. What happens in life is that there is a doubt in our mind that leads eventually to unbelief, that leads eventually to idolatry, that leads eventually to rebellion. Notice how this doubt and unbelief starts. The serpent comes and says, hey, is it true that you can't eat of anything? He is planting the seeds in their mind to doubt the creator of the universe and the goodness of God. And he's saying to them, is God holding out on you? Does he have your best interest at heart? Only you know what's best for you. God doesn't know what's best for you. You know what's best for you. Only you know what you need to do. Only you know what you need. Only you know what's right for you. I mean, surely a loving God would never hold out on His children. Now today, it may not be about fruit trees in your life or in our culture's life, but some of those same arguments are there. Are you sure that God's Word is really what's best for us today? I mean, it was written a long time ago. I mean, surely, surely... Surely we've understood and we've learned and we've grown and we have a better understanding today of these things. And so what was written 2,000 years ago can't be true because we have better knowledge today. And you know what really? We know what's best for us. We understand what's going there. That was for people back in a time that was different. They didn't have cars and they didn't have all the modern technologies we do. They didn't understand the human psyche like we do. And so God was giving them rules for their day, but our rules would be different because surely God, a loving God would never Keep us to the same standard The progression of sin in our lives Starts with this doubt With this unbelief And it follows this pattern of That God doesn't love you Is what we believe Or God is holding out on you Or he's not completely trustworthy And you know best What you deserve for your life It is all about you Notice here Even the serpent says And oh you're You're not going to die. That's ridiculous. Don't worry about the judgment. Just enjoy now. Just live now. Just enjoy what's here. Don't worry about what's coming later. A week and a half ago on Wednesday night, I got to share a little bit with our student ministry. And I told them one of the most fascinating stories when it comes to our understanding of sin is the story of Jacob and Esau. We've talked about that in here before. You know Jacob and Esau, right? Twin brothers. If you remember the story, who was the firstborn in that story? Esau. And Jacob was second. And in their day and time, whoever the firstborn was had certain rights. And as I described it to the youth, they got a double portion of the inheritance. And so if there were two sons and someone had $100, the firstborn would get $67, basically, and the second would get 33 And it was for everything. And for what we can tell about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, those, those, what we can tell about them... They had amassed a pretty good wealth at this moment, and so whatever they owned was going to be passed down to Esau, except what happened with Esau's birthright. He sold it for what? Bowl of soup. I hope it was a good bowl of soup. It's the most expensive meal in the history of the world. Right? Right? Remember what he said when he came in? What good is my... He, I'm starving. Uh, every time I hear that, I, I think about when I was growing up and I was a teenager and I was a little bit hungry and I would come in, Mom, what's for do I'm starving. Right? Now, he's probably hungrier than I was at the moment. But you remember when he said, he said, what good is it for me to have a birthright if I'm dead? And he eats the soup and the moment he eats the soup, he realizes he has traded Fortune for a moment. What the enemy attempts to do with us is to get us to doubt God's goodness, ignore the punishment that's coming, and exchange the pleasure of a moment for consequences that go on for a long time. Adam and Eve here exchanged in a moment for the pleasure of eating something for sin to enter into God's creation. Once you have that doubt and unbelief, it leads to idolatry. Like, wait a minute, I don't see them worshipping anything here. Well, Romans 1, that we'll get to in a couple of weeks... Describes sin as, and people that have sinned as, people that have exchanged the glory, that word learned means the weight of God, of his thing, for things that are created. In uh, other words, they have substituted the desire for creation over the creator. And we see that in this passage because he looks at it and she says, it looked good for food and it was pleasing to the eyes and it looked like it would give them wisdom. Uh, John talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that we have this desire that wells up within us and we put more value on the creation than the creator and we think to ourselves what we need to fill our lives is the creation of God, not God himself. And that isn't just fruit fruit or food, it can be Sometimes people fill their lives and are gluttons in what they eat because that is what they're trying to fill themselves with. But it also can be money in general, what we want to get out of life. It can be romance, and that if we just had the right person, just had the right thing, or respect from our peers and our community, that I'm longing for that. That's what I need to fill my soul. Not God, but the respect of my peers or family. We put everything we have into our family, and we try to believe that that's what will give us real satisfaction or comfort or pleasure. And eventually we just rebel. A little doubt leads to unbelief, leads to idolatry and to rebellion. And we decide to go our own way. I'll do it My way. Maybe a great song for Frank Sinatra. It's not what we need for life. And our world wants us to buy into the fact that we have to do everything just to find fulfillment, just to find what we ought to find here and now. We even change ancient or older stories to fit a modern narrative that just to go after what you love and eventually it'll work out in the end. Um, One of the movies that came out this summer was a remake of The Little Mermaid. And uh, I I have two girls, and so watching The Little Mermaid growing up, the cartoon version, has been part of our house and part of our world, you know, and singing all of that kind of stuff. It's just there, right? You know the story. How many many of you have seen The Little Mermaid movie or you kind of know, maybe not the new one, one of the old ones or this new one right And and you know the story, right? A girl is up and saves a handsome prince and she's a mermaid and that's kind of a problem because she can't live out of the sea and so she goes to Ursula the sea witch to get legs and in order for her legs she takes her voice, right? And she gets her legs and she comes out and she is up there and through some difficulty as always happens in a Disney movie, eventually the prince falls for her, she falls for the prince, happily ever after. You know The Little Mermaid was based upon a story that was written a while back by a guy named Hans Christian Andersen. Anybody here read the Hans Christian Andersen? Okay, for the other 98%. Here's what that story says. Similar story. Mermaid girl goes up the surface, sees this prince. She saves him, puts him on the beach. Another girl comes and rescues him and takes him back to the palace and helps him to recover little mermaid falls in love she goes to the sea witch, gets legs, loses her voice, comes up to the surface falls in love with the prince here's the problem though in the original story the prince doesn't fall in love with her and she was told by the witch that if she doesn't gain the love of the prince she will go back to being a mermaid and die That's what happens. That's not the story Disney wants to portray. Can you imagine how terrible of a movie that would be? She literally goes into dust on the sea. It would be a different story. Probably wouldn't have been a remake this year of it. But that's what our society wants us to do. Just do it your way and enjoy it. And that is straight from the first temptation that we see in Scripture. Second thing we see from this passage, not only is there a pattern to sin that was true then and now, secondly, we do everything we can to hide from our sin. I mentioned it while we were reading through it. It's just ridiculous to hear the games they play when they eat. Suddenly they have knowledge of good and evil. They know what right and wrong is and if they've done it or not. And they know they have not done it right. And immediately they notice they don't have any clothes on. Wasn't an issue before they ate. Was an issue now. They try to cover themselves. They go hide in the trees from the one that made everything. And as he comes through looking for them, he says, where are you? Which, by the way, as we have said before, is not a location question. God knows where they are. He has not lost them on His God positioning system. He knows where they are. He is asking them to declare what has gone on in their lives, and they are hiding from it. And they do it in some of the same ways that we do it. They rationalize what happened. Well, you know, God. I mean, you know, we just uh, we we were out and suddenly near that tree that you told us not to do anything with, and. Satan was there, the serpent, and all that started to happen, and they start to rationalize what was going on, they start to shift the blame, the guy, Adam says, well, it's the woman you gave me, God, so really, when we're thinking about this whole equation, God, I was fine, you gave me a a lady, this woman here, uh, she led me astray, so whose fault is it, well, it's really your fault, God, because you gave me the woman that gave me the... The thing. And he goes to the woman and she's like, oh, no, no, it's not my fault. It's the serpent's fault that you created. It's most crafty. It's their fault. We started to shift the blame. And we do the same thing in our lives. We rationalize our own sin. Have you ever noticed that when people talk about their own sins, there's a word they use that diminishes what they really did? We talk about our own mistakes man, I've made some mistakes in my life. A mistake is not carrying the one in addition. Like, a mistake is something you didn't intend to do. There are many of us in this room that have had intentional mistakes in our lives. We've planned mistakes. We have known it is wrong, and we have gone through with it. We call mistakes in our lives sins in other people's. We rationalize it. Well, i it was my upbringing, or, or the people that I ended up with, or where I was led, or the position I was in, or the place I was. We shift the blame. Well, it, it wasn't me. It was my parents' fault, or it was my spouse's fault. It was my kids' fault, or it was, it was my friend's fault. We do everything we can to hide from our own sin. Here's what we have to realize. Not only is there a pattern to sin that we see and that when we're caught we try to hide, we have to realize there are major consequences to sin. Just in this passage we see them. When he's given out the the consequences, God talks about the pain and childbirth. And yes, that is still a real thing, a very real thing. But I think that it's more than just pain and childbirth that is, understood here that it is pain in general in life, that we will walk through life in pain. Physical, our bodies will deteriorate. Things will hurt us. Also, emotional, spiritual, relational. In fact, there's relational conflict talked about here. It talks about the woman will have a desire for man and man will rule over. And I think that it's just talking about a breakdown of what was naturally going to happen there as God's creation intended. And as a result, we have relationship breakdown around us. There is tension between husbands and wives. There is tension between uh, parents and children. There is tension between friends, tension between coworkers. Tension between church members. There are relational issues at play in every kind of relationship we have. There is futility that comes in our work that we dig and dig and dig and it doesn't produce the crops that we intended for it to do. There is a hardness to what we are doing in life that it is difficult every day to walk through this life. And at the end of it all, there is death. And because of what happened in sin... There is eternal separation from God. Sin has devastating consequences. And let me just say, if you're here today, we're going to talk in a minute. We're going to give you a, this has kind of been a downer sermon. I'm going to give you some good news here in a moment, okay? But the reality is, if we don't understand the depths of what we have done in rebelling against God, it's not just a couple of mistakes, it's not just having fun with the good old boys, it's not just, well, I'm just doing what my ancestors did, or what, what I'm just a guy being a guy, or a girl being a girl. Like, It's more important to understand the devastating reality of us rebelling against God. And if we don't understand that, we can never understand the glorious grace and mercy God has given to us. And all of these consequences, the amplification of pain, the relational conflict, the futility in our work, death uh, physically and death eternally, all of that is brought on by ourselves and we choose it every day eagerly to continue in it. Now once sin gets its grip into us, it will take us for a ride that we never intended to be on. Adrian Rogers used to say famously that sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you're willing to pay. And that is what went wrong. Creation has been scarred and tainted since that moment. And without the intervention of the one and only good and loving God, all of us would be destined to spend eternity separated from Him. And yet, even in the midst of the punishments being laid down, for the first time, God gives us a glimpse of the only solution for our sin. Right in the middle of that, in verse 15 of chapter 3, we have what has been labeled the Proto-Uengelion. I told Maddie I was going to preach on the Proto-Uengelion today, and she said, Please don't. It just means the first gospel. Verse 15 of chapter 3 says, And I will put hostility between you and the woman. That's why snakes are always bad. Never do anything good with a snake. Amen? Amen. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then here it is. He, her offspring, will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The point that is made there is literally that you will take a chunk out of him but He will destroy you. You're going to wound Him, but He will prevail. The truth is that what is described here is the coming crucifixion of our Savior, who was pierced for our transgression, who was struck for our iniquities. The punishment of our sin was laid upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Richard Sobs says this, Thank God there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. I thought about one of my old favorite hymns. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And there's this weird part of the second couplet of that first verse that says, And I love that old cross. Were the dearest and best, for a world of lost sinners was slain. You see, there's only one solution, and thank God it is free to us if we will believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. He has done the work. He has paid the price. He has given His life as a sacrifice for our sins, and He crushed the head of the serpent when after three days of being struck on the cross, He rose again, empowered to live forevermore. Praise be to God. So what went wrong with our world? We did. What's the problem with our world? We are. Now I've given away next week's message as well, but we're going to spend a little more time talking about it, if that's okay. How do we fix it? We don't. Jesus does. Because he alone is worthy. Let's pray together. Holy Father, today, thank you for reminding us again of how great your mercy is. Our sin was great, but your mercy is more. Holy Father, we pray that today, if there are people in this room that have not yet accepted you as their Savior, that today would be the day, that now would be the time. And Lord, we pray that more than anything else, that today would be an opportunity for us to reevaluate who we are and the way that you love us. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the offer of salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.